You are listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with a global soul. Um, Our theme music is a clip of Summer Nights by the Eric Jones Trio. It's provided by our friend Mark Chesanow, who plays with the Eric Jones Trio every Thursday and Sunday at Good Times Jazz Bar downtown. Hey everyone, welcome to Arts on the Air. This is Tamara Garvey, and I have the pleasure of sitting down with Adonis DeKing. Welcome, Adonis. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Great to be back, yay. Um, and yeah, if everybody, if you listened last week, you'll remember that I replayed the very first show that I had done a year ago, which was Adonis, and he was like a month or two out of SCAD at that point, right? Out of your animation degree. Yep. So yeah, we had always thought it would be cool to check in a year later. So this is exciting. Um, yeah, a lot has happened in this last year. So that's I'm very incredible. Excited. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. The funny thing, and I did listen to, um, I listened to bits of our first interview to like get a baseline and see what kind of predictions you'd had for yourself and then see how it compares to now. And one thing was at that time, you know, you had just graduated from SCAB and you were still living in Savannah and you were um, going to be moving back home to the Boston area soon. And at that point you were like, you know, you wanted to just pay down your student loans a good amount. And then you really wanted to be moving back to Savannah. And unfortunately you haven't yet made it back to Savannah but it sounds like that still is your desire to do so in general. Yeah. Well, the thing is now that I'm sort of establishing myself as an artist here close to Boston, it's like much tougher now for me to move to Savannah because like I have a business registered here in Massachusetts for my oh. arts. Um, I'm, I am in galleries. I just recently got into a gallery and now I'm like, establishing myself more in Boston than I was established in Savannah. Ah, interesting. Okay. Well, that's, we'll definitely have a lot to talk about. I, I kind of want to back up a little bit about how you were when you were just finishing at SCAD, you had, um, your degree was in animation and then you kind of discovered your love of painting by giving people gifts and you got really into doing pet portraits and to a smaller extent, people portraits. Um, so I think when Melissa and I interviewed you before, you were like painting a lot of the cats at East Shaver. And I think you were kind of just wholesaling to them. You had some stickers made, um, but it looks it looks like in the years since you've really delved a lot more into wholesaling. Can you, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so I've learned that people will more likely buy from businesses than from the actual artist because um, they like seeing things in person. And if you go onto an artist's website, you know, it's only the art is between a screen but when it's in person, someone will be able to pick it up, look at it, and then buy it. So I've learned that if I get a lot of my art into businesses, it's more likely it'll sell. And then, you know, those businesses will be repeat customers and they'll keep buying stuff, even though it's at wholesale prices and it's much yeah. lower. Um, I'm still selling a lot of them because I'm selling through the businesses. That's great. And we should, I'll clarify. For people, oh, sorry, that's my dog. Um, so wholesaling is like when you as a person just sells a larger amount to a business and you sell it to them at half price, but you've sold a bunch of things. So you have to, um, in order to be able to do this with your business, you have to, your pricing has to be such that you can still make a little bit of a profit even when you're selling things at half price. So it's a whole like way of thinking about your art or whatever you're making business-wise. Yeah. And wholesaling is really a good way also to spread your name as an artist. Like if your art has your name somewhere on it, whether it be just 
on the back of it, whether it's like underneath the barcode, your name is there, or any way that people will buy your art and then see your name, that's going to like get your name out there a lot more. Yes, exactly. So like people go to store X and buy a thing, but they still, when they get home, it's not like this mystery where they'll never know who it actually came from. They can always find you and then look you up and follow you somewhere or buy from your website or something like that. Yeah. So you, um, for your wholesaling, you've been selling on this website called FAIR, which if anyone else is interested, interested, it's F-A-I-R-E. And it basically is like the Etsy for wholesaling. It's people who make things handmade and want to be wholesaling to shops. And it's all over the country, all over the world. So it's kind of like the gold standard of sites to sell on for wholesaling. Um, so do you want to tell us, tell us a little bit about how you got your items onto this site? Yeah. So, well, while I was still working in a bookstore here in Boston, um, they would get a lot of shipments. Their gifts departments was like one of the best sellers. So many book related items, um, people would buy that a lot. And when they would get packages, I kept seeing the name fair. It'd be a packing slip from this website called fair. And I was like, Hey, these other people are selling on that website. I have stuff to sell. Why don't I join it? And so I went on and then I made my whole little store on there. And then I just started getting, you know, other businesses buying. Most recently, there was this aquarium in California um, that bought it. Um, They bought a bunch of my cat stickers. Um, There was one in Indiana. It's like a cat cafe that bought some of mine. So it's like all around the country, I'm randomly just getting orders without me even needing to reach out to them. Did you um, Did you have an Etsy shop before you had your fair shop? Um, yes, Etsy was okay. my first one, but um, yeah, you. I really wanna try to get my stuff on as many websites as possible just yeah. to increase the sales, you know? Even if it's web, even if it's wholesaling and I'm not making that much from it, I still want to get my stuff there just so my name can get out. So on your, um, on your website, cause you, so you have an Etsy and then you also have your website and you have a shopping cart there, which is great. It looks like the vast majority is stickers. And then you have a few prints. Is that what you're doing on fair as well? Um, yes, I am slowly adding in my art prints. Cause that is kind of new to my shop. Okay. Um, and I'm still figuring out the golden like pricing range of art prints and how I really want to get it. Um, I found that $4 for stickers is very good right now. My art prints are at 15, but I may lower that. We'll see. But I mean, sales have been going pretty good for them. So I I have my stickers at $4 too. That seems like a good, a good number. Yeah. (laughs) And bookstores, like you mentioned, also buy a lot of gifts. Are they, they're like placing orders just of stickers, basically of animal stickers. Basically. Yeah. Just the stickers. Now are you, um, so your business is it's like you're getting orders for pet commissions or you're just choosing pets to paint and so you like have the painting that you sell and then you can make prints and stickers of it so have you found that like somebody might hire you to do a commission of their particular pet but then you can turn that into a sticker and you can just sell that to a shop things like that yes those have been my most recent ones Um, my most recent stickers and art prints have all been from commissions. And I say to them before I start it and before I take payment, I say, Hey, would it be all right if I turned this into a sticker and also a prints and then sell that to other people? And every time they're always super excited because they're like, Oh, I get more than just a painting. Now I also get a sticker to put on my laptop, something to hang on my wall. Um, That's true. It's nice. It's like, you're asking them to give their permission for you to like, 
keep licensing out their pet's image. But in return for that, they get some cute freebies themselves. They get their own stickers. Yeah. And it yeah, turns into like, if I feel like I'm undercharging for the painting, I'm comforted by the fact that I will keep making money from this painting by selling stickers and art prints. So that's interesting. You just touched on if you feel like you've undercharged for the painting, because one thing I did note down in our first interview a year ago was that um, you, you we talked about how you were pricing your commissions. And, and at that point, you said that you would tend to charge more to people if you were doing it in oil because the materials cost was higher. But you said that in general, you realized that you were undercharging and that you had sometimes charged as little as like $50 for a painting, which Melissa and I gasped at. So kind of wanted to talk to you about how, how that's maybe changed for you as the year has gone on. Yeah. So now that I've been getting more and more commissions, I realized I was severely undercharging. Like <laughs> um, if I did the math and how many hours it would take and the cost of materials, I was paying myself like $8 an hour at the price I was charging. So I have since upped my price. But with that, I've also upped the quality of my work. Now it's also... Um, I give a certificate of authenticity. I give them a free art print and sticker of their pet. And then if they want to get it framed, I also frame them. And I've really been trying to just increase my quality just to make it, you know, because if someone's paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars, they want yeah. something very good quality. And yeah. if I have the skills to provide that quality, then I will. Well, it's great now. I mean, at the beginning, it's hard because you don't have that many examples to show people especially since at the time, you know, you graduated with an animation degree. And so you were like launching this entire field of paintings. You didn't even have, you know, four years worth of paintings to draw back on, but now it's been a while. So you have examples to show people and you have this higher pricing and it's, it's like a circle basically. Can you tell us a little bit about, so you have a, you have a day job in a bookstore. Is that right? Um, I used to, but I've since switched. I am now working at a frame store. Okay. where we make custom frames for paintings and different artworks. What exactly do you do there? Um, so I am half graphic designer and half framer. So I am like assembling frames, putting them on original paintings that artists come in. And it's a very nice job because half of the place is a gallery. And I actually got the job because I reached out to them and said, hey, um, do you have an open spot for the gallery? I'm an artist local here. And they said, yeah. And then I had my stuff up for a month. And then they said, hey, we also have a job opening. That's amazing. I love that you're getting at it from both sides of your business. Yeah. I, I used to work at a custom frame place in Savannah too. And it was really interesting. And it was awesome to have a day job where you're working with your hands. Can you tell us a little bit about how you time-wise, how you're balancing out your day job and then also having commissions to do and then also fulfilling these orders that you're selling to shops? It feels like I don't have any free time because I work like 40 hours a week at my normal job and then I get home, package up orders, any new ones that came in and then try to continue on commissions that okay. I have. And because of that, I've learned... I tell people an expected production time. I have a time of three weeks turnaround when normally it only takes me a few days to make the paintings. Oh, but now wow. that my schedule is so full, now it actually does take three weeks. Interesting. It's good to, I've heard for um, that Amazon got so big because their motto was like under promise and over deliver, I guess. 
So I think that's a good business model. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the one thing we can take from Amazon. How how are you getting your commissions? Do you have to, are you sort of advertising your services around or do people just find you? It's mostly still through word of mouth, but it has picked up a lot recently now that I am marketing myself a lot more as an artist. And it's this weird thing where when I increase the prices, it seems to attract a lot more attention from people. Because okay. I think when people see two artists and they say one is charging $50, another is charging $200, they're going to go to the $200 one because they're going to say this person has a higher quality of work. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting, there's kind of a tipping point that you can't get insanely expensive, but yeah, like you mentioned, if something is oddly cheap, then people are going to kind of side eye it. Are you, when you say you're marketing yourself, is that mostly Instagram? Um, some, some of it's on Instagram, but a lot of it is in person talking to people. Um, recently at my gallery, I just held a raffle for a custom pet portrait and it was $20 for t per ticket. And okay. I think it was like 15 people put into the raffle. Um, so if I do my math right, I think that's $300. That I sounds think. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it was very nice because each person only pays $20. And if they don't win it, it's only $20. But if they yeah. do win it, then they're like, I just got a <laughs> custom painting for $20. And it's that's very nice idea. because that is the main thing that attracted people to the gallery, attracted oh. them to see my art. And then from that, the people that didn't win the raffle still commissioned me and they still paid my full oh, retail did. price. Oh, interesting. Um, so, so this show, this is in the, the gallery slash frame shop where you work? Yep. Um, what is this? What is the body of work that you're showing there? Um, so the title is Nature. It's a bunch of nature landscapes. That's something new I've started going into landscapes okay. because I was kind of getting tired of pet portraits because I've been doing them for so long but half of the show still was pet portraits and that was the main thing that sold there the prints of those okay but yeah so that was that is my most recent gallery right there and i i don't know what i want to do for my next series but i kind of want to move on from nature landscapes also were these landscapes of like the massachusetts the area around you or what were these um yeah so they were mostly in-person ones i really don't like working from photos which is why i've been trying to move away from pet portraits okay um and so i would paint in person but it was so strange because people thought like it was a street performance or something people were coming up to me and watching me paint and you know as an introvert i don't like that i don't like um you know when i'm painting i like to stay focused and if people try interrupting me that's it's very it's very hard to keep painting. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's something that comes with just being out in public, I guess. So you were doing you were doing landscapes where you you weren't like in downtown Boston. You were out in the countryside or. Um. Yeah, I I tried going to like forest trails, lakes and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to keep all of the paintings strictly of nature and not anything man-made it was like mostly people that were on jogs or biking on the trails okay they were yeah. being active but they would stop <laughs> yeah yeah so that's called like plain air i think have you done plain air paintings 
I, you know, I only had, I only ever did that when I was in SCAD and we were required to maybe go in Forsyth Park or somewhere and paint. Cause I, yeah, also I, I don't like being interrupted all the time and I never, I, I don't know, there was, there doesn't seem to be any way around it. Everybody I've ever talked to who goes out in public and paints has that where people are constantly interrupting them and talking to them. So it's still fun when they want to talk about the art. So, I mean, I enjoy talking about my paintings. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it gets to be too much when it's like one after another and I'm trying to just finish the painting. Yeah, I can't really do two things at once. So I can't really answer people's questions and then continue on with what I'm doing. <laughs> it always really slowed me down. Do you are you working in any different materials now? Because when we interviewed you a year ago, you were kind of alternating between oil and gouache and you kind of made it sound like gouache technically was difficult and so you were just trying to like get a handle on how to maneuver it so I didn't know how that how that's been going for you in the past year I really don't remember the last time I touched gouache okay. it has been all oil now yeah yeah I don't know I don't know what drove me away from gouache because I don't dislike gouache it's just I like oil a lot more now and all the things I can do with it yeah and I don't I'll know like... what it is bringing you to try so hard with gouache in the first place, <laughs> like why you're yeah. so committed to it. Um, but I still have all my gouache paints, so maybe I will get back okay. into it if I need, if I just need a, a break from oil. How do you, so since oil takes so long to dry, so say you're like dragging your canvas and your easel out into the countryside to paint something. And then at the end of the day, it's like fully wet and it's going to be wet for ages. How do you transport that painting back? Um, so I have this little custom easel that sort of, um, it sort of protects the painting um, once you collapse it. Because it's collapsible and it has wheels that you can drag. It's like a little luggage, I guess, that turns into an easel. So it protects it, but I try to keep it in my trunk because um, I just don't like lugging the whole thing into my house if I know that I'm going to be going out the next day again. Okay. So there's that whole thing where... I want to keep the painting safe. And so I just take as many measures as possible. And if I know it's going to be a rainy day or very windy, there have been times when I've been caught in the rain and I have to like rush back to my car with the painting. Yeah. Well, that easel suitcase, that sounds, that was a, that was a good find if you're really delving into this. How yeah. many days would you maybe take to work on a whole landscape to finish it? So my first landscape took me about, four different separate days of going out and having like two hour paint sessions. Okay. Um, it was mostly because I was experimenting with different techniques and I wanted to just wait until the first layer dried and then, you know, move on to another technique in the second layer. Um, and it, yeah, it was very much just, it was very difficult to complete it in one session because it's, just painting outside is so difficult because you never know if it's going to be too hot or if you're in the sun for too long, you can't stand for too long. When you're painting in your house, you know, you're in air conditioning and you're sitting down and you have good ventilation and you can go grab a snack. But when you're outside, it's so much different. So that's something I really had to adjust to when I started painting outside at first. What were the, um, so the, the specific techniques that you like set on that first day to really work into what were they so there's one called impasto okay. i've been like reading a lot into the actual techniques now because when i first started out i was just doing my own thing and not really knowing 
any of the technical side, but now I've been really focusing on these technical techniques, reading a lot of oil painting books, just trying to really better myself and my knowledge of art yeah. history. Can you describe what impasto is for people? Yeah, so impasto is when you look at Vincent van Gogh's work and you instantly recognize his style, that style is impasto, where it's very thick brushstrokes. It's very these heavy, strong, solid lines of color. That's what impasto is. Are you using a palette knife too? Um, No, I actually okay. am using, I've been looking up if any other artists have used this technique. I hope you don't judge me for this, but I purposely dry out my brushes and I do not clean them. Because <laughs> I have found that having very stiff brushes lets me get that impasto style that I really want. Um, and so, yeah. Like some cheap brushes that you just have sacrificed to be dried out, kind of? Yeah. And some expensive ones that I've accidentally let dry out. Okay. <laughs> but still, I mean, yeah. I've learned to... I've been really trying to master all these techniques and all these tools and all these different styles. And I still don't even feel like I've landed on my own style. I still feel like I'm just mimicking other people's, but that's still for a few years down the line when I actually, yeah. when I discover mine. Well, that's what people do. I mean, in the foundation classes it is, it is like copying old masters. Like for example, Van Gogh, you do that for a while and then you could eventually break out on your own. So you kind of are just like, mimicking the early SCAD classes for yourself. Yeah. Are there um, other techniques other than impasto that you're working on? Um, so there is one new one that I'm experimenting with called Scraffito. Okay. It's where you scrape away the top layer of paints to reveal the underlayer. So I'm doing that now that I'm getting a lot more pet portrait commissions. I'm using that technique to get all the details in the fur and the whiskers really using a very, very thin brush to scrape away the top layer of paints to reveal okay. the underlayer, which is a lighter layer, and that really shows the whiskers a lot more. Are you using like the handle of the brush, like something really hard to scrape? Um, Yeah, just my thinnest possible brush and then yeah. using that to scrape. So you might do, so you probably, impasto is like, the last layer of paint that you do on a painting, right? It's super thick. So the underlayers are going to be thin and light and they dry fast. And then like it's building up and the top layers of paint are the thick ones. And then you're like scratching into that basically. Yeah. So I've been really trying to mix all those techniques into the paintings. Yeah. Um, Just to see which ones I like more, you know, and I, I kind of really do like impasto. Well, it sounds, I mean, I know you said you're kind of getting away from pets, but I immediately thought like, oh, and the thick paint seems great for fur and then scratching away to make whiskers and texture in the fur sounds great. But I'm sure you found a way it's working for your landscapes too. Are you using it to kind of make the painting almost three-dimensional feeling? I have tried, yeah. Um, still perspective is still something I'm working on because the landscapes have really only been these last two months I've started on them. Okay. Um, so perspective is definitely something I've been trying to master and try to experiment with, but it's very tough because I've painted a lot of lakes and the water is constantly moving. And that is like one of the most wow. difficult things for me, painting water. Interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that, but that totally makes sense. Um, how many pieces did you have in this show at your gallery right now? Um, so there's, I think 25 pieces. Wow. 
um one of them sold and it's it was one that i did not think would sell it was okay. one that was a four by seven inch very quick two minute painting that i made of a pile of leaves and i was like i i'm only making this one to fill up wall space i'm only spending two minutes on it it is the day before the show i'm gonna make this very quick because there's this little space left on the wall and someone oh actually God. bought it but i thought they it was like my worst piece ever at your opening they bought it or later um at the opening yeah who knows i mean maybe there's something about that whether the the subject of it or the way that you did it that could strike some kind of chord you never know yeah i don't know <laughs> um so hanging your your show did did you hang it or did the did the gallery people do that for you um yeah so they provided all of the hooks to hang it but mm -hmm. i was the one who put all of the backing and the frames on the actual paintings and then okay. when i went to the show um the owner sort of worked with me to figure out where each painting would look best because you know each area yeah because each area has like different lighting different um some of the walls are bricks some of the walls are solid white paints so yeah. it was a few hours of sort of deciding where to go yeah so what are some things you worked out as far as which piece would be on which busyness of wall so a lot of the paintings that had a darker color palette i put onto the white walls so they would stand out a lot more um and then the bricks, it really was just putting each painting against the brick and then against the white wall to see which one looked better. Yeah. Um, I found a lot of the pet portraits, strangely, were better on the white walls. And then the lakes were better on the bricks. Maybe it's just been blue on red, maybe. Yeah, br brick walls are interesting because they theoretically are really beautiful and kind of chic, but... Yeah, in practice, it can be hard to find out an art that sits on them well and like still stands out. Yeah. Did you about... say so all, all of your pieces in the show are framed? Um, most of them. Um, I try to do all my framing on my own, but frames can be very expensive, especially yeah. for large pieces. Is this? A, do you have some kind of philosophy about? Because a lot of people, I think, a lot of modern artists who work on panels or canvases don't frame their own pieces. Do you have a philosophy about that you just really prefer it being framed or? Well, if I'm giving it to someone, I prefer it to be framed because I like all of my art to go directly from me to the wall. You know, they're able to just hang it as is. And um, it just, I feel like paintings look more complete with the frames. Even though if you look up a painting, most of the time it won't show you the frame on it. Like if you look up, starry night it won't show the frame on it it'll just show shari starry night yeah. but when you actually see the frame on it it makes it look so much more like beautiful and powerful are you getting a good discount at the shop um yes i am <laughs> but necessary. i yeah but i still do frame my stuff on my own yeah <laughs> well how was um how was the reception did you have to uh what did you think about the turnout and did you have to do a lot of marketing to get people out to that um, it was a very big turnout. It was a lot of them were my coworkers from the bookstore, though, because um, I sort of made these fancy invitations for them. Um, but in turn, they invited other people. And so a lot of the people were, you know, strangers I had never met. And it was so nice to just their first introduction to me is my paintings. And I think that is 
super nice and it was so nice to talk to everyone yeah. and sort of you know just market myself as an artist did you give a little speech at the reception um no <laughs> that is that is when I am much more confident in public speaking and being an artist yeah but it was <laughs> just like two hours of non-stop conversations with people so yes yeah major, that major still was very groups and schmoozed yeah okay <laughs> well Adonis we um this is a good time we're going to take a break the end of our the first half of our show and everyone this is Tamara with Arts on the Air and I'm interviewing Adonis King and we will be back you are listening to WRUULP Savannah Georgia 107.5 FM we are Savannah Soundings community radio with a global soul trees are one of Chatham County's most treasured natural resources Beyond their beauty and cultural significance, the impact of trees are far-reaching and compounding, spanning from economic benefits to health improvements to climate change resilience. Trees are woven into every aspect of our lives. Savannah Tree Foundation protects and grows Chatham County's urban forest through tree planting, community engagement, and advocacy. More information is available at savannatree.org. This portion of WRUU's programming is brought to you by listeners and by Brighter Day Natural Foods. Brighter Day Natural Foods has been serving Savannah's healthy food and supplement needs since 1978. It is located at the corner of Bull Street and Park Avenue. They have online ordering and curbside delivery available. And now a walk-up window for smoothies, juices, and sandwiches from the deli. They are open from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday and 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Sunday. More information can be found at brighterdayfoods.com. What does it mean when we say that WRUU is a community radio station? It doesn't just mean that we invite the community to create programming. And it doesn't just mean that we're a voice for the community. It also means that we're counting on the community to keep us going. And you are the community. Almost all of our modest budget comes from small annual or monthly donations from listeners like you. You get to enjoy our community-focused programming because many others have stepped forward to do their part. Now do your part by joining our community of listener donors. Go to WRUU.org right now and make a one-time or monthly donation. And thank you for supporting Savannah's community radio station, 107.5 FM. Hey everyone, welcome back to Arts on the Air. This is Tamara Garvey and I am sitting down with Adonis DeKing and uh, we're doing a follow-up. If you listened last week, we replayed the very first interview I did for Arts on the Air when I interviewed Adonis and he was just a little bit out of SCAD. So now we're catching up with him a year into his career. It's very exciting. Welcome back, Adonis. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, and as we kind of talked about this at the beginning, so you're the first person I've interviewed who's not currently in Savannah. You'd moved back home to save money. So you're in the Boston area and we'll talk about what you're thinking as far as your career. Cause I know originally you really loved Savannah and you wanted to come back here, but as you're saying, as time goes on and you're like getting more dug into your community, who knows when you'll be able to make it back here. Yeah. It's definitely where I have been ex like so established here now. I yeah. have, I've like, I bought my own printer to print art prints. Um, I have all of these new art supplies and I've been doing the math. If like I move back to Savannah, it's going to cost so much to ship all that. And then it would feel like I'm starting over again. Hmm. Um, but I mean, I really do love Savannah and I really want to move back. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe it's cheaper just to drive it down. When I moved, I just drove. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, I know you said that you're getting a lot of business around there, but it sounds like a lot of your business is online, like either on Etsy or on Fair. So they're still ordering from you no matter where you live. But, yeah. So you did you launch your Etsy shop kind of just as you were graduating from SCAD? Um, yes. It was um after I had actually started selling at eShavers. Okay. So I first got all of my stickers into eShavers. And then I said, well, if people are buying it from the store here, other people around the world will also buy it. So I went on to Etsy and posted all my stuff and I actually started getting some sales there. Okay. Were they from like people in Savannah or were they just people all over who were buying these eShaver cat stickers? Um, well, it was actually all over. I okay. actually bought like a map of the United States and I started like printing out stickers and putting them on the map where people had bought them. Nice. And my I really wanted to fill up that map, but I have since quit because it became way too much work to fill out an order and then also put it onto the map. And when my schedule started getting a lot more busy, I was like, yeah, I need to I need to start doing less stuff. So, yeah, something's gotta give. And it was the the tracking map. <laughs> yeah. But last There's time a- last time I checked, it was I was like halfway through filling up every state, halfway through getting a sticker on every state on the map. That's very cool. I love that. Yeah. Um, I was going to say one cool thing for people who don't sell on Etsy is the notification on your phone when you make a sale is like this old fashioned cash register. It's like cha-ching and it's amazing. And it's very Pavlovian. It's so exciting whenever you get an Etsy sale, like whoever decided on that noise and coded it in as a psychology genius. Yeah. Um, so you'd started on Etsy and you said you were having some success. Did you, like, as time has gone on, were there things that you learned about how you were, how you wrote up your listings or how you photographed them? Like, were there things that you learned about how to like play the Etsy game better and come up better in searches and things? Yeah. So I really learned just from looking at other people on Etsy who had more sales than me. So I saw other people, not really as competition, but as like, role models, I guess, that I would aspire to be like. So I would favorite a shop that also sold pet stickers. And I'd be like, what is this person doing that I'm not doing? And then I would start doing it. And then I'd see like a boost in sales there. Um, and what so are, was it a lot of about their tags, things like that? Or what was it? It was mostly the presentation of your work and the way you described it. Okay. And then it was also offering free shipping. Free shipping is like, the best seller ever because people would rather buy something $4 with free shipping instead of $3, $1 shipping, you know? So did you, did you have to boost all your prices a little bit to take in that free shipping? Um, just for the art prints. Yes. Okay. Um, but it, yeah, it was a lot of just looking at what other people are doing that I wasn't doing. And then I will just start doing that. That free shipping thing is so weird because people are so trained to like be into that from searching for things on like Amazon and other just, you know, dumb, big, like Bed Bath and Beyond type stores. And yeah, if they really think about it, it's like the item price has been boosted to take in the free shipping. But then it's just this weird thing where even on these like handmade sites like Etsy, you feel this pressure to do that too, because it's, yeah, it's sort of like the snowball. You see that other people are doing better with it. So you have to do it too. And it just, 
bugs me that Etsy is always sort of like encouraging us to put our things on sale and put our things on promotions and have lots of coupons and do free shipping and really play this game as if we're big box stores, you know? Yeah. I've, I've learned that I really try not to put my stuff on sale because I think stickers are so small and I have like so much storage here that I can just put the stickers in a box and just wait for a sale. Yeah. I have, I'm in no rush to get rid of these stickers. I'm in no rush to get rid of all these prints. So I'll just keep them in the box until someone wants one, and then I'll give it to them. How is it going? So you said you've started slowly making prints of your own work, and I'm glad that you bought your own printer because that definitely is the most cost-effective way is to just start doing it all yourself. And like, you know, it's just this initial investment. Where you get the printer and you get the paper and the cardboard and the plastic. And then once you're doing that and you have your little shop, then... It's like you're on assembly line and your cost per print goes way down. So the the money that you make for prints is great. So I'm happy to see you're starting on that. Um, yeah. Has, has there been a learning curve for you as far as like making the prints or adjusting the colors or anything? Yeah, it's one of the main reasons I got my own printer was because I knew that I really wanted to experiment with which ones looked good on prints. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to go to an outside company and like order 50 prints and then see, hey, now that it's much smaller, this painting doesn't actually look that good. So I wanted to just be able to print on demand so that I only have one print of each of my paintings right now. But if a business wholesales them and they say, hey, I want to buy 10 of these prints, I can easily just take a minute, print them, and then send them out. Yeah. You're, the show that you have at the galleries, did you have prints? Um, yeah. So I was selling prints and stickers there. Yeah, it was very nice because a few people wanted me to sign them. And that was just so, it was so strange to me because like a year ago, I was like, the only people who own my art are people in this bookstore and people who are in Savannah. Yeah. And it was so strange because I was like, I am signing a piece of my work right now and someone is paying me for it. And that was, I don't know, it was very weird. It's like these little milestones yeah. that you reach as an artist where you realize this is something that I wanted a year ago and I've just actually achieved it right now. How you reach these milestones and you don't even realize like it just slowly keeps coming. Well, it's sweet that the thing that you really liked was the customer asking you to sign it. That seems like like it seems like a small thing, but I think that's very touching that that was the moment where you thought, oh, like you just felt very legitimized. That they wanted that from you. Yeah. Did you have any like artistic milestones in your career that made you just like step back for a moment and think like, wow, this is, this is really cool. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, maybe a few years into it, I'd been selling on Etsy and just kind of like coasting along. And I did this illustration that is, um, it's, it just has the handwriting. It says, hang in there, B. You can't say that on the radio. And then I had a drawing of like a donut, like a delicious dessert. And I put that as a card and I was selling it on Etsy as like, like an ironic Valentine's Day card or just like a general cheer up card. And then one day I woke up and I was getting tons and tons of orders on this card. And this was like kind of a number of years ago where it wasn't as immediate where you could see where your traffic was coming from. So I kind of dug around a little bit and it turned out that like the Huffington Post had put out that day a big blog that was like 10 great anti-Valentine's Day cards. And they had picked mine as one in this Huffington Post article. And also mine was like the thumbnail for the article. So 
this blog post was being shared around and I was looking at it on Facebook and it was just getting, you know, like it's a Huffington Post thing. So it's getting tons of shares and I was seeing the like embedded thumbnail of my hang in there be with the donut being shared all over the place. And I just, for like days, I got tons of orders and then it kind of trailed off and then the Huffington Post like reshared the blog post again. Then I got another huge blip of orders and then it trailed off. And that was just like, that was the first kind of really incredible thing that happened that also it just came out of nowhere and nobody reaches out to you and says to you, Hey, your item is going to be featured in this thing tomorrow. It just happens. And it's like, you better be prepared. And so suddenly overnight, all I was doing was sitting home, printing this card and shipping it out. <laughs> yeah. I know which card you're talking about. Cause I've, I've looked at your store before. I really liked that yeah. one. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So that one, the donut was first and that was a big hit. And so then I did an ice cream one. And then I did a wine glass one and the wine has definitely been the most popular. So would you say the ones that you do that are like just for fun that no one has commissioned you for, do you enjoy doing those ones more or do you enjoy like when someone commissions you? Cause I know that you do like um, paint your house and yeah. things like that that I've seen. Do you enjoy doing those or ones that you just think of yourself? I do. I mean, honestly, such a small amount of commissions, like just, tiny, maybe a few a year or something. It's such a small part of my business. So I do like it because, because it is really small like that. I don't think I would want for that to be my major thing. Um, you know, I do feel very spoiled that I can just paint whatever I want and then it sits around and hopefully the painting sells one day, but in the meantime, the prints and cards at least are selling. So, um, you know, I'm really fortunate to just have like complete freedom at that. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. When I get a commission, it feels it feels way too business oriented where I feel like I'm a businessman and I'm like negotiating someone's yeah. salary or something like that. Um, when in reality, all I want to do is just paint and I don't really care what price I charge as long as I'm, you know, making a profit, even if it's a very small profit, I would still love to paint something for you. Have you had any? So in your commissions, um, I think a lot of people who do commission work as time goes on, you refine your like terms up front of like when people buy and you have, you're like, first I'm going to do this sketch and then this, and then this is the time period. And this is the turnaround. It's like people refine all these um, rules for it because you've had bad experiences and like things have gone wrong. And so you've learned that you have to like code in certain rules for yourself. So I was curious if you'd had any experiences so far that, you know, kind of these hard won, hard learned lessons. Well, I haven't really had many bad experiences. It's mostly just the self-critic that is myself. Like mm -hmm. I'm so critical of my stuff that when I see another artist, like they will offer a frame or they will offer this thing with the painting. I'll be like, hey, I can do that. And that is actually really cool. I, I really like that that other artist is doing that. I'm going to start doing that too. Um, so it's a lot of just... With every commission, I think of something that I could have done and something that I will do for the next one. Okay, interesting. How has it been shipping these original paintings? Because that's um, it's a lot bigger undertaking than just sending some stickers around. Yeah, so shipping is very tough because um, you really never know how much the shipping is going to end up being. So you don't really know how much you're going to actually make from it, because if I know that I'm doing a commission and I'm going to ship it to someone, I have to boost the price of the commission or I have to get them to pay for shipping. And I can't tell them a concrete price for 
shipping. So I'll say, all right, just pay me this much for shipping. And then it turns out I'm a, I actually have to take out a lot more to cover the other cost. So interesting. Is that because like the box ends up being a lot bigger than you thought, or it just ends up weighing a lot more than you thought? Um, yeah, it's mostly just the boxes are super big and yeah. also super heavy. If they're getting a small portrait, like a nine by 12, you know, it's not that much, but when you get really into the 20 by 24 commissions, yeah. those are very expensive to ship and very risky because paintings are fragile. You never know. You can never pack it too safely. Right. Yeah. You have to buy insurance for it. And I guess, like you said, you're, you're into framing things. So you frame it and then that kind of adds on a good amount of weight, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I know. So during the break, you mentioned that you had some kind of business practices that you wanted to talk about. Um, yeah. So I've been really trying to get into the business side of it all, just because I was very scared when I was doing my taxes last year that I was going to do it wrong and that I was going to go to jail. And then that's like the end of my artistic career. But probably jail is not the first step. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was, I don't know, it was just so scary to me. And then I just told myself, you know what, I'm just going to learn as much as I can and just see next year I'll do it better. And so I have this goal where every month I, I want to make more than I did the previous month. And it's worked for the past eight months now, where even if it's just, you know, I made $5 more than last month, um, I keep this mindset so that I can always stay on top and always just keep doing better than a previous version of myself. And yeah, so that's one of the main things that I focus on. But I also think of, you know, the other side expenses, how much I'm spending instead of how much I'm taking in. Because some months, like when I bought my printer, I only had an actual income of, I think, $20. The rest of it was spent on the printer. Are you are you using any kind of program to log your income and your expenses to make it easier at tax time? Um, yeah, just Google Sheets right now. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I've been trying to think of a better system, but well, it's very one, tough. The one that I use it's, that's free, there's probably a higher paid version, but I use the free one and it's just called Wave. Just if you just Google W-A-V-E accounting and you like link it to your bank account. And so it'll automatically import every you know, every transaction in your bank account, whether it's a deposit or withdrawal, and then you just have to go in manually and like put in whatever notes you want for it and code it to, you know, like it'll, the categories correspond to the like IRS categories. So you just have to go in manually and like click on each transaction and code it. But then it's pretty cool if you I try to keep up with it as the year goes on. But there's definitely been years where I like did not log into wave for an entire year. And then it was time to sit down and do taxes and I had to code an entire year for the transaction. So try not to do that. But once you've done that, then it's like, it literally just spits out a report and it's like, here's the amount that you spent on advertising. Here's the amount you spent on whatever. And then you can just like do your taxes. Yeah. And there's so many different categories when it comes to taxes, you know, like advertising, shipping, um, expenses, supplies, all of these different things. And it's, yeah. When I'm on so many different websites and I'm selling my stuff on so many different areas that I'm getting income from, it is overwhelming sometimes when I have like five different income sources and I have to 
sort of manage like this is how much I got from this website. This is how much from this website. Yeah, I found that too. You have like things are coming in by Venmo. You've got Etsy sending things in. You got people, pay, you know, checks and various things. But yeah, this the wave thing. It literally is just linked to your bank account. So it's like any money that you put in your account, it's gonna log it. So, um, have you found any sort of like artistic community in Boston that you're spending time with? Um, not really. Um, with this new job in the frame store, a lot of the customers are artists. So yeah. I'm gonna try to like I don't know it's very tough because Savannah is such an artistic city that it was very easy to just go out and meet an artist but here everyone else like it's very rare to meet an artist and that's why I think when I'm painting in public a lot of people stop and talk to me are you um have you kept up with any of your fellow animation students from SCAD do you know what all they're up to oh no I don't <laughs> it's like like after everyone graduated everyone went their own way and you know we still i still see their posts on instagram they still like my posts and i still like theirs but it's very tough because everyone is sort of like first year adults i guess everyone is just trying to figure out their life right now and it's so it seems like everyone is so busy like mm -hmm. i really don't have any time to really just sit down and talk like to an old friend of mine do you think that literally everybody just went into the animation field and got a full-time job? Or is there anyone else who kind of was disillusioned and went in a different direction? I could kind of see it in the other students when I was there that a lot of other people really didn't like the field. And so a lot of people, there is one person that I follow. They've been um, doing a lot of digital art, a lot of backgrounds, and a lot of their income is from conventions. They go to a lot of conventions, sell prints of their stuff, and they really have not done any animating. And I think that's very nice because they're such a good background painter and they're so good at digital landscapes that they found, you know, they found their field. They found the thing that they like doing and they're getting paid for it. Yeah, that's interesting. So they kind of are doing like animation adjacent work, but like being an illustrator where you're like making items and then going to shows and selling your items. Yeah. So when I was listening to our previous interview a year ago and you're getting ready to leave Savannah, you said what you would miss most is how close and how walkable downtown was and just how naturally beautiful it was. Is there now that you're a year out, is there anything else that you kind of miss a lot about Savannah? I really miss how quiet and sort of like slow paced in comparison to where I am now. Yeah. Um, everyone here in Boston is very fast paced. Everyone is in a rush to get to work or a rush to get home. Everyone is, it just seems like everyone is always busy and everyone is always doing something. But if you're in Savannah, you know, you'll go outside. People are just sitting on a park bench reading a book or they're just walking around the city looking at the trees, you know? So that's, I mean, Savannah is like my ideal city, I guess, just where people are relaxing and people are just walking around enjoying life. Yeah. Well, I hope you do get to make it back here if that's what you want. I know you've yeah. gotten to make a visit a little bit. Yeah, I yeah. did go down in March, but I'm planning on coming back soon. Okay. Um, one thing in the previous interview, I think Melissa might have asked you who is a favorite artist that you were inspired by. And you said it, you said, um, Professor Stephen Gardner, and that he had a real attention to detail in his work. 
Um, is are there any other artists you've been looking at recently? Um, no one who is still alive, I guess. I've been looking at a lot of very old artists, a lot of the old masters, just yeah. so I can sort of solidify their technique. But there is one person on Instagram that I have been sort of trying to mimic the style of. I mean, um, it, you can you can talk about dead old masters. That's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. So it, it sounded like Van Gogh was big about the impasto. Yeah, Van Gogh and Da Vinci, I guess. Okay. Those are the two that I've been trying to mimic their oil painting styles. Okay, and then the 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 living person on Instagram that you're looking at is um yeah so they are a pet portrait artist okay. and their their name is Jennifer Gennari and their handle is Jen underscore art and they do the scraffito technique so good where they have the very very small fine brush strokes on the fur and the whiskers and just looking at every post they make really inspires me to go out and make a painting and I think that's you know, that's what every artist should be, where you inspire another artist and you get more people to enjoy yeah. art and like it. Yeah, and that's interesting just that people are at, you know, always different levels in their development. So that girl that you mentioned, she probably has other people that she's looking at for her own techniques and then she's inspiring you. And then I'm sure there's people who are like just getting started who are looking at your work and seeing how much you've grown in a year. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You know? You want to tell us about what you're looking to do next? Because I know you said you're getting a little bit tired of doing pet portraits. Yeah, so I want to get into very realistic landscapes. Um, I want ones that are like, they look like they're moving. Like if you ever see an old oil painting of like, um, of storm on the ocean, and there's this ship that is like about to crash, I want to make paintings that are like that, where it feels like it's moving and someone just froze time, painted it, and then resumes time. Okay. So you want landscapes that have some kind of object in them that delineates that there's like action happening? Yeah. Okay. Um, and I really want to get very good at that. But it's very tough because it's it's hard for me to paint something that's moving. Like when I go out and paint lakes, if it's a windy day, it's very tough for me to paint the water if it's moving. But I don't know. We'll see a year from now. I mean, a year ago from now, I was only doing pet portraits. And it was, I didn't think I would ever do a landscape. But now I have a whole gallery of landscape paintings. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you said, you know, from the beginning, you said that painting outside the lakes and the moving water is the hardest thing for you. So I love that this specifically is like what you're looking to delve into and do for the next year is like the actual aspect that technically is the hardest for you. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah. One of my professors, um, he had us when I was taking foundation classes, he had us start with doing the most difficult stuff. He would have us do like ultra realistic charcoal drawings of people. And he would have us like, just do the most complicated pieces of art ever. And then he would say, all right, now you can do everything else much easier. And it actually was much easier to do everything else after I had made this like realistic self-portrait. I was like, oh, now it's much easier to just do <laughs> this one shadow on this circle or this box. Yeah, that's an interesting order that he had you do things in. Um, I was going to tell you if you wanted to look up an artist, I went to 
a show at the Ships to the Sea Museum recently. They had a show up for quite a while that was um, these really beautiful, pretty big watercolor paintings of like military ships and like moments of ships and harbors and there would be storms and you know they were like but like not necessarily sailboats but just like you know military vessels and so there's a lot of action going on sometimes the ships were capsizing or there were just these huge storms going on um and the artist's name was jeffrey beaumont and they were be very beautiful they were all watercolors and um yeah the just the detailing in the like froth of the water as it was jumping around was really, really cool. So I think you might like him. Well, those are watercolor is like the most difficult thing for me also. So that is like two of the most difficult things, but that is if I can make one good painting, then I know I can make <laughs> other ones. Yeah. Like a big piece of watercolor paper with lots of details on it that the artist has had control over and hasn't let it get muddy, but has only done just enough layers of paint to keep it vibrant is really impressive. So, but yeah, the the subject matter that this guy was painting, I think would really be up your alley. Um, is there anything else you wanna kinda leave us with at the end here? This our, thank you for being, you know, the anniversary, the first interview I ever did, and now you're the first oh, yeah. person to do twice, they're a historical event. Um, anything you wanna kinda leave us with? Um, I don't know, I guess just that in this past year, a lot of it felt like it was very slow at some times. And then just a day later, I I am booked for a gallery or a day later, I make my first landscape painting. Um, so, I mean, if it feels like it's very slow in your art career, just keep going. And then one day, just this monumental thing will happen. And then, yeah, I mean, just keep going. I think that's fabulous. I think that's really wise words. And yeah, it can be hard for people when you're zoomed in on your life and it just feels like nothing is really happening, but it's interesting every so often. Yeah. You'll have like a big moment, like you mentioned where you take stock, but then if you, yeah, if you ever zoom back and look and think about yourself at a certain point in the past, then it becomes clearer how far you've gotten in your career and it's a lot easier to keep self-motivated that way. So thank you very much. That's really good advice. Um, well, thank you again, everyone. This has been Adonis to King, and uh, this is Tamara Garvey. The show has been Arts on the Air, and thank you so much. Next up on WRUU, that old Savannah magic from 4 to 6 p.m. It's a variety show featuring Savannah history, radio theater, interviews, and music. You are listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with a global soul.